I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need of your help. And we know that that is the case all the time. And here we are in this passage that is so deep and so rich. I could, I could have a hundred sermons and not cover everything in here. So God, I just confess that at the outset. I confess that we are only going to be able to scratch the surface of this. And so God, I am just trusting you that what you have laid on my heart will be helpful to our congregation, to our church family this morning. So God, as we pray so often, please give us eyes to see and minds that would understand and hearts that would love the truth that is before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the second part of this prayer of Jesus, as we kind of work towards wrapping up this series, Jesus preparing his disciples and those who would come and follow Jesus after, which would be us, as he's praying for them, we get this, this unique glimpse into the heart of Jesus and his desires and what is pressing on his mind. And he prays in the midst of, of this incredible prayer to the Father he makes a prayer of unity. And it's interesting because when he starts this whole section, back in John 15, talking to his disciples, he says, abide in me, become one with me, saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so it's this plea with the disciples that whatever comes, whatever happens, whatever is thrown at you, abide in me. And now he closes by praying for us that we would be one with each other and one with him and one with the Father. He's praying that we would abide in unity with him. This idea of unity is something that is clearly very pressing in our culture today. That's why I say I don't know if there's a more pressing message to preach. There is a lot of disunity all around us. There's a lot of disunity in our world, and there's a lot of disunity in our churches. 
And it's so striking that when Jesus has this opportunity to pray for this to be recorded, this is what he prays for. I think one thing that that should make us realize is how critical it is. There's a thought about unity that it's just kind of this nice-to-have thing. It's this, this bonus idea. We, we do this a lot with central issues. We talked about how we think that the fruit of the Spirit is a bonus. And like, you know, you got to speak truth, but if you can be loving, all the better. When really it's our love for one another that demonstrates we belong to Jesus. And in similar fashion, we find ourselves buying into the lie that unity is kind of this like, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak truth. I'm going to stand for the truth. And if we're united, you know, all the better. But we're actually show that we're actually kind of okay with division. And yet this is what Jesus is asking for. It's critically important. It's not just Jesus, by the way. One could argue, and and I would argue, that outside of the truth of the gospel, outside of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no other issue that is more pressing on the heart of Paul than unity. He says in his letter to the Philippians, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So when Paul has the opportunity to write to one of his churches, he's saying, look, if there's any, like any, if you've taken any comfort, if this has meant anything to you, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Why is this so important? That's really what I want to look at is why is this so important and how then do we actually pursue that? Well, it is so important because our unity is tangible evidence that the gospel is true. Our unity is is what declares and demonstrates to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And I don't make that up myself. Jesus says this. Look at, um, in 17, verse 22, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So this idea of, well, how are they going to know that Jesus actually is who he says he is and has done what he has claimed to have done, how will they possibly know that? And the answer from Jesus and Paul and the writer of Hebrews and the writer and Peter and all the other authors is Our unity in love. They will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. They will know that your unity will enable people to see that Jesus actually was sent by the Father. So that the world may know. And the reason is because the gospel narrative is that God saves sinners. God gathers people from across the earth, rebels against him, people who 
hated God and were enemies with God. From every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every socioeconomic class and every political persuasion. And he takes them and he gathers them and he chooses them and he brings them to life. And he adopts them as his sons and daughters, making them who were once not a people, a people. And if sons and daughters, then brothers and sisters. And the whole point is if we are not unified, if we are not a family, then God did not form us as a family. And if he did not form us as a family, he did not adopt us as sons and daughters. And if he did not adopt us as sons and daughters, then we are dead in our sins and without hope. That's why our unity is so critical. It is the evidence that God did all those things. It is a miraculous unity of the body. Something that the rest of the world does not understand. I think it's important that we distinguish something here really quickly. That unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is easier to pursue. Okay, It's just easier to say... I'm going to group with the people who think like me, look like me, act like me, dress like me, speak like me. And then we're going to form and we're we're going to be unified. And I just say like, that's, that's conformity. That's not actually unity. And that's what the world, both outside and inside, that we often try to pursue. Because this idea of unity is just so difficult to understand. It's so challenging. It can press on us so much that we look for substitutes. We look for substitutions to it. And so we say, okay, no, uniformity. But that isn't what we're being called to. We're called to unity. And it is critically important. Now, whenever I um, speak about unity, in the last several months this has been the case, I get one objection that comes up more often than any other. And so I just want to give a disclaimer here. If you're one of the people that has brought up this objection, please don't feel like I am um, singling you out because you are not alone. It is a very common objection. And I understand it in spirit, and I want to kind of unpack it a little bit and show why I think it's actually the wrong question and the wrong way of looking at it. The objection I get is that, yes, I agree that unity is important, but not at the expense of truth. And so there's this view that unity and truth are like kind of opposed to each other, and this idea that like, well, yes, unity, what we're saying is unity would be nice, but not at the expense of truth. That's our real pursuit. Okay. What about truth? What people are saying often when they're saying that is that there's a belief that the way to Christian unity is to study the Bible more and more and decode everything that we are to believe, think, and do from it. And that the more we study that, the more we understand it and study God's word, the more we will become unified in truth. Now, here's the problem with that. 
That's not what Jesus said. And if you try to point that out, it will draw all kinds of criticism. But Jesus doesn't actually say that. He says something more profound. In John 5, he addresses this line of thinking. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Robbie touched on this in the past, and it's this very critical passage that we need to understand, that Jesus is addressing people who said, yes, as long as we can decode the scriptures, and as long as we understand everything that we're supposed to do and think from it, then we will be righteous, we will be good. And Jesus says, you do that to your own peril, because you do that, and then you miss me, which is what all the scriptures are pointing to in the first place. And so they would argue and, and be distracted and get consumed by these arguments about cleanliness and the Sabbath and um, about tithing and about how they should handle all these different things. And they would argue and, they would, and then they would hold people accountable to obeying it in the way that they've decided that it needs to be obeyed. And Jesus says, you do all that and you miss me and you miss the things of God. This is important that you understand exactly what I'm saying here. So I'm going to say this and hope that you will hear me out. When you pursue truth, just truth, when you pursue truth and only truth, you end up with nothing. When you pursue Jesus, you end up with truth and Everything. That's the claim. The history of the world is littered with people who pursued truth. And the reason that doesn't work is because we are broken. We read with broken minds, we interpret with broken hearts. We are incapable of understanding God in our own strength. Listen, I'm sure that you are aware. I mean, I'll just use myself as an example and hope that you can relate to it. There are people who are far smarter than me, far more well-read, far more articulate, far more logical, far more winsome, who do not believe in Jesus. Being able to just study a text and try to decode it and understand it with our own minds will only lead to destruction. It is only when empowered by the Holy Spirit that we can see life. I think we can understand how when people with sinful minds and sinful hearts and and sinful desires looking for their own glory, how that does not end in the the realization of truth. And so when people say we cannot have unity apart from truth, I say we cannot have unity apart from Jesus. That's a very important distinction. 
And it's important that we pursue it in that way. The path to unity is through Jesus. He is the way. Not through our own understandings. If we are united to the Father through Jesus, then we will be united to one another. So then how do we have this unity? How do we get this unity? Well, Jesus tells us how we receive this unity. And he says it's through the glory of God. Both in receiving the glory from God and and declaring it. He he says in, in verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So here's the train of thought that Jesus kind of gives in this prayer. He says that I give them glory. You have glorified me. I give them that glory so that they will be unified. And they will be unified so that the world may believe that you sent me. Are you following his train of thought here? So he says, you've given me glory. I've given it to them. That unifies them. And then their unity demonstrates to the world that you have sent me, that everything we've said is true. That's a fascinating idea, this idea of being glorified, that we actually get to be glorified. Because we always talk about, like, we need to glorify our Father and glorify Jesus, and it feels kind of weird to talk about how he glorifies us, right? So let me help understand, like, what that means. God giving us glory is really the process of our being sanctified. It's him sharing his glory with us and giving it to us. See, we are changed by his glory into something glorious. That's how that works. So our Father gives the glory to Jesus, who then gives it to us, and that glory changes us. It changes us, and it sanctifies us. And so we would say, you don't glorify him by making the right stands or the right statements or by, by just giving like a good Yelp review and saying like, yep, I'm for Jesus. He's great. We actually glorify him by being changed by him. This is critical. If, if we want to have unity, then we have to receive the glory from the Father. And the way that we demonstrate that is when we are changed. Not when we make bold claims or stands. It's when we say, this is what the glory of God has done for me. It has radically changed me. And so we should seek, if we want unity, we seek it by seeking the glory that only comes from the Father. And our problem is that we don't want that glory. We want the glory from the world. That is a temptation that all of us struggle with, whether we are realizing it or not. We want other glory. And we see that in that passage of John 5. So in the passage where Jesus says, you know, like, look, you search the scriptures, but you don't see me. You're missing me. And he goes on and he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
That question, like, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is another way of him saying, another time where he's saying, like, don't live for the glory that comes from man, the glory that is temporary, the glory that is, that is fickle, the glory that is fleeting. Instead, live for the glory of God, that you would receive that and with it all eternity and treasures that never fade. And this is one of the paradoxes that we see in Scripture that seem like paradoxes to us, but to God it is beautiful and it is true. You want to find your life? Lose it. You want to have every desire fulfilled? Kill your desires. You want to be fearless? Then fear God. And if you want to glorify yourself, you will never receive glory. It is only from the Father in receiving His glory that we will be glorified. And so that's what Jesus is praying. Make them one. Give, I've given them the glory so that they will be one, so that the world would know that you sent me. Our entire mission, our entire existence, the whole reason we are here on earth, Jesus wraps up in this prayer. And so if you're there with me, and if you're saying, yes, I, I want to receive that glory. I want to receive the glory that comes from the Father. Like, I'm, I'm with you that we struggle in this. And, and, but then the question is, like, well, then how do I do that? How can I possibly receive this glory that comes from the Father? Like, okay, now this is where you're going to tell me, like, okay, well, you got to do the right things. you got to make sure you study enough and come to church regularly and, and you know, give money and do all that stuff. Except that the Bible gives one specific, clear, consistent answer to this question. Over and over and over again, across thousands of years, it gives one answer that is a little bit surprising on how we receive glory from the Father. And that is to humble yourself. Psalm 138 says, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 3 says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 29 says, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. True unity comes from receiving the glory of the Father, which comes through humility. We've talked before about how love is the mark of the Christian family. That to know that we belong to God means that we love one another. The mark of the beginning of that process, the way that you are even, you and I are even able to love and be transformed in love, is when we are given a spirit of humility. And it is the lack of that that creates all kinds of division and brokenness in our world and in our church. James addresses this in these relationships in chapter 4. 
He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What is he addressing here but living for a glory that does not come from the Father? Trusting more in the passions that I have and the things that I think are best and the things that I want for myself. And I want those things and when I don't get them, I fight and I quarrel and I murder. I covet and I I want that and I can't have it. So there's division and brokenness. And we see this all the time, all over the place. But I'm addressing it in the church. We look at things in the world and we say, well, I want, I want this thing in the world. And we even say, like, well, but it's not a bad thing. And in fact, like, I think that that's, God's actually said that we should have that. And we say, okay, yeah, but what happens when you start to turn that into an idol and you say, no, I want this, I need this. And when we don't get it, we fight and we quarrel. Because we are looking for a glory that is not from the Father. Goes on and says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And look, I have a whole slew of passages that say this very same thing. This idea that if there is brokenness and division, you see it all the time. You see it from the words of Jesus and you see it all throughout the New Testament where they are addressing these kinds of issues. And whenever there is brokenness in the church, the instructions are always the same. Humble yourself. Seek humility. Paul says, to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know that's a big passage, but did you notice Why he says Jesus is going to be exalted and glorified? Because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's because of that. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him. It is Jesus who emptied himself and humbled himself so that we could be reconciled back to God. And his calling to us then is the same. Humble yourself so that the world would know that I sent you, that the Father sent me and I have sent you. It goes on and on and on. 
And I'm not going to read all of these, but Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And he says in chapter 12, verse 16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen. When we humble ourselves before the Lord and before one another, we will be exalted by God. And not exalted to receive praises of men, but exalted to share in the glory of Jesus. And that is far better. We are glorified with him, and that glory from him makes us into something glorious that we could not do on our own. We are changed and conformed not into our own man-made images, but into the image of Christ. Our desires change, our motivations change, our demeanors change, and yes, our actions change as a result of all of that. And that is the order. And all of that glorifies the Father. All of it declares to a world when they see the unity that is brought by the glory of God in all humility, that is what Jesus says will make them believe that he was sent by the Father. Because it's different. Because when we are motivated by the things that the world values, we demonstrate that we are of the world. Whatever flavor of worldliness that is, whether it's conservative or liberal or whatever, whatever the flavor of worldliness is, it's still worldliness. But the kingdom has a different aroma. It has a different currency. It has a different king. And look, it is hard to wrap our minds around it. It's hard to fight for that. And it feels weird, like, okay, if I'm given humility, like, when do I fight and when do I not? This is one of the biggest challenges for me as a pastor, is trying to figure out, like, when, when do I speak against this and when do I not? When do I, when do I remain silent before accusers and when do I, when do I speak out? It is, it is not an easy thing. And so my prayer is constantly, God, just remind me of my own brokenness. Remind me of what you have done in me. I mean, because it can be hard to block those out. There are threats to this kind of unity. And what I want to do is just finish, I'm just going to finish with two of them, two quick ones, and I'm going to save the big one for next week. That's where the sermon got broken up. And I think the biggest threat to our unity right now is we're distracted by the things of the world. Like, that's the most immediate pressing one. And that seems really obvious, right? Like, you could preach on this passage across generations, and they would say the cares of the world. I mean, Jesus said that in his parable of the sower and the field. And so he's sowing all the seed, and there's the seed that sprouts up, but it's choked out by weeds, in which he later says is that's the cares of the world. It's choked out by the cares of the world. So we've always known this, but I think we've gotten into a culture where we assume we know what those cares of the world are. Like, okay, yeah, that's like money and power and influence and relationships. And yes, it is those things, but it's more. 
And we've had new ones that have come up because we are human beings and we can come up with all kinds of fun new ways to sin and disobey God. But in the past generation, I would say that it is the constant bombardment of information that has been this new distraction. Like we couldn't even have imagined 30 years ago the amount of information and preying upon our hearts and our minds that would be going on in our culture and would be seen as normal. I mean, let me ask you, does anybody here think, when you're thinking about these things, does anybody here think, you know what, when you're looking over your past week, you know what, I wish I spent more time on Facebook. Anybody? Anybody think like, you know what, you know what would have been good for my heart and what I think would have been honoring to Christ? I should have spent more time reading articles about how the pandemic is going to kill us all. Or, I'm going to spend, I wish I would have spent more time reading about how everyone who thinks the pandemic is going to kill us all is a moron, and I want to read articles about why it's all just all fake. Anybody feel like should have spent more time doing that? Anybody feel like you should have spent more time on news media outlets and reading more about the impeachment, reading more about what's, what's going on in our world? Like Anybody feel like that's what I want to spend my time doing? I doubt it. If you're like me, you get to the end of a week or you get to the end of time and you look back and you say, what? why was that important? Is that really what I want to value and treasure? So we're not alone. But there's so many distractions and the answer is simple. Set your mind on the things above, as Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3. Seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6. Devote yourself to the mission of God, as we see in Acts. To remind yourself constantly and come face to face with Jesus and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And to say that in receiving this glory, God, I don't want any of the glory that comes from looking like I I, I have it all together or that people would think I'm right or that I'd be on the right side of any of these things. Like, I just want the glory that comes from you. Seek first all of that. And all those things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God so that the world would believe When we are united in that purpose, these other things don't matter as much. And I just want to give you a caution and a warning here to to finish. is Beware of the voices in your world who capitalize and prey on your desires and on your fears. Be mindful, flock. Be on guard. We see it in the world a lot, right? Like we all understand that the political stuff and the news media and everything like that, they make their money by getting you to click on their article. And the more outlandish their article is, the more likely you are, you and I are to click on it. That's how that works. So they don't care about you. They care about what you can give to them. But that is happening in the church as well. And I need to draw attention to this. A threat in the church around our unity is that we are listening to the wrong voices, not just in the world, but in the church. And when I say the church, I mean the big C church across the world. And it's nothing new. 
They're voices that would vie for our attention that are not for our good. This is nothing new. When Jesus would teach these incredible things about the kingdom, the Pharisees and the scribes would come along and try to sow division and discord. And their motivation was to gain power and influence. If what Jesus was saying was true, they lost their power and they couldn't handle that. And so they would lob false accusations at Jesus and twist what he was saying and try to trap him. But it didn't go away once Jesus rose from the dead. Paul would come along and he would preach the gospel and he'd go from town to town. And then following behind him would often be a group of what they would call Judaizers. But they were people that would come in behind him and say, yeah, yeah, what Paul preached was okay, but not the best. You also need to follow all of these things. And by the way, if you don't, God hates you. And you know that Paul, he was kind of a questionable character anyway. Like, how do you really know that he meant your best, had your best interests at heart? And so they come behind him, sowing division and discord and raising distrust. And today we have the same thing. Now let's be clear. I am no Paul. I am certainly no Jesus. We have been given, as elders of this church, a responsibility to teach and shepherd and care for the flock among us. And we have taught basic truths of Scripture that have been historically believed since Jesus walked the earth. And right now, the voices are getting louder. Bloggers and YouTube channels and watchdog sites who are coming along and spreading discord and division. And Paul warns Timothy about this when he's telling him how to pastor a church. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He's basically saying there are people who are going to realize they can prey on the sheep. They can make their money off of it. They can take advantage of it. They will have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. But at the end of the day, they do not care for the sheep. They seek to devour the sheep. And there is a word for those people, and that is wolf. And we get really good about watching for wolves around the pen. But do you know what is more dangerous than a wolf prowling around the outside of a pen? A wolf inside the pen. And that is where, as an elder of this church, I say, I have to speak. Because there are those, and now I'm just talking about faith church. I'm saying in the church at large, there are those who are prowling around pretending to be a part of the flock, but they seek to devour. Those voices, you can know them by the fact that they, are, they love controversy. They love lofting accusations. They love declaring people a heretic and, or a false teacher or someone questionable because of anything that is said that they don't personally agree with, which is exactly what the Pharisees did. Exactly. Like verbatim. They take... And 
you know that they are not of God because they take a responsibility that was not given to them. It was given to elders. They are illegitimate authorities and voices in the church. And they convince many by saying things that they will convince many that they're speaking truth because they are more conservative and they just keep pushing it. And it's almost like it's a badge of honor. Like the, the fewer people I recognize as being a true teacher, the more true I am. That's just nonsense. I saw a site recently that had a whole list of teachers that are not to be trusted or were not sure if they can be trusted. Do you know who they said could be trusted? Them. I'm not making this up. And we have people who are retweeting what they say. And I'm saying that the only person this person says can be trusted is them. We have to be aware of this. They have no standing in the church. They are illegitimate authorities. They do not have an authority given by Scripture, and they seek to divide the church to build their own following and their own kingdom. And they do it in the name of God, causing great stress and strife and enmity and confusion among God's people. You want to talk about angry? That's the thing that makes me angry. Are there false teachers? Yes. But beware of sites that call everyone a false teacher but themselves. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. So just because they're right about one does not mean they are right about, about a bunch. I could go around and accuse everybody in here for thinking impure thoughts right now. Every single one of you. Guess what? I'd be right on a couple of you. Maybe more. I don't know. That doesn't make me discerning. It makes me ridiculous. That's not helpful. This is what we are called to do, is seek the unity that comes from the glory of the Father. And I'm saying this as one of your shepherds. Those who appoint themselves as guardians of the truth while they're typing blog articles from their mom's basement are not authorities. They are not. And here's one of the reasons why I know it. They don't know you. They don't care about you. They are not the ones who sit with you in your hospital room and pray through tears and give their lives knowing that one day we're going to be held accountable to how we shepherded the flock among us. Your elders love you and are fighting constantly to discern truth and to know how to care for the flock. It is heavy That kind of responsibility and authority doesn't come just by saying, by having a lot of followers on YouTube. It comes because God says, you who are broken and I am sanctifying and changing, I'm asking you to care for others that I am sanctifying and changing. That is overwhelming. But Robbie and Jeff and Doug and Kevin and myself, we take this seriously and we wrestle together. Sometimes pastoring feels like coaching a team, coaching basketball, and I call timeout and gather everybody together and be like, hey, here's the game plan. This is what we're going to do. And then some random parent from another team walks by and is like, that's never going to work. Don't listen to that guy. And I'm like, what? What in the world? Who asked you, random guy? And then like, as I'm sitting there looking at him with shock, and I, and I like, turn to my team and say, can you believe this guy? I turn, and they're all following him. 
And I'm going, what? what in the world? Listen. God has set this up for a reason. He has called us to shepherd you well, and we are endeavoring to do that. And we are broken, and we make mistakes. But please be cautious of voices that seek to divide you and to sow discord and to sow distrust. I've made this offer before. I forgot to do it in the first service. But if you ever have a question about anything that we're teaching, anything that comes up in a sermon, please talk to us. Anybody who has done that could testify to you that that is not a painful experience. Not a single person has ever said to me, you know what, I struggle with this. I don't know if I agree with you on this point of the sermon and had me respond as, get out! (laughs) It doesn't happen. What you'll hear is me saying, okay, well, let's go to the scriptures together and and maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we, can, maybe we see that God is doing something else in this. Or maybe we understand that this wasn't actually the question or the issue. Or maybe we understand there's a miscommunication. And the same way goes with how we go about our mission and how we go about making disciples who make disciples. But there are those who want to divide us based on silly things. Just don't let them. Our unity is too important. It is a unity that was bought by the blood of Christ. And we receive it through the glory of the Father and are glorified ourselves and united in that and sent out in the world in our unity so that the world would believe that Jesus came from the Father. That is huge and far more important than 99.9% of the things that we get distracted by. Next week, I'm going to take some time to deal with what I think is the biggest threat of a false gospel that we know right now today. And I think it's important enough to just take the time to address it and then to remind ourselves of the true gospel. Because it is there in pursuing Jesus The real Jesus, as revealed through his word, but as revealed by him in the flesh, the word of God. And abiding in him, it is there that we will find the glory of the Father as we seek it in humility. We will find the unity that comes through him so that the world would know. Let's pray. Gracious Father, We are so easily distracted. I'm so easily distracted. God, I can't help but think that you and anyone in heaven who is watching this is smiling at how much I got distracted talking about distraction. And yet, you've put me here. And I thank you for that. I thank you for this church family whom I love so deeply. I thank you, God, that our unity is not dependent on us having everything figured out. It is not 
dependent on us being able to convince everyone of the same things or to be conformed to our own image or have uniformity, that our unity, our true unity, is found in you. It's found in receiving the glory that comes from you, that Jesus has given to us, that makes us glorious. God, let us pursue that unity. And as we are sanctified, let us respond with, to one another with forgiveness and charity and understanding forgiving one another, walking alongside of one another, encouraging one another, that we would be able to go and be sent as you were sent to declare to a lost and hurting world, this is really true. You really do take sinners from the ends of the earth and you redeem them and you adopt them, and you form them into a family, and you send them out to declare your glories. Let us be a family that reflects that glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.